Zeke, how are we doing this weekend? Hey, it is good to be with you once again, whether you're inside the worship center, joining us out on the patio or online, welcome to Rocky Peak this weekend. If you and I have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dre, I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I'm going to be leading us in our time of teaching, so if you would, if you would open up those programs you got on the way in, there is a green and white message note sheet that's got some notes to help you follow along with this time of teaching, also like to provide some blank white space for you to be able to jot down anything the Holy Spirit's prompting you to remember. You're going to definitely, we say this every week, you're going to definitely need your Bible this week. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Jesus, I was just listening in the back to that song about your name. And I think sometimes we forget the significance of a name that often we live in a modern culture in which we give names because they sound good. But at the time of scripture, names carried significant meanings. They reflected character. They reflected aspirations. They reflected what you hope this person would be. And as we come to the name of Jesus, we celebrate what it means that in the name of Jesus, there is the love of God. In the name of Jesus, there is power and resurrection. In the name of Jesus, there is transformation. Not only is your name beautiful, but when we come to you in a beautiful act of repentance and submission, you give us your name. And we now get to be call, call ourselves Christ follower. And so Jesus, we stand in awe of you and your name and the responsibility to wield it well. We stand in awe of your word, which is living and active as it speaks directly to our hearts this weekend. As a communicator, as I often pray, I pray that I would become much, much less and that you, King Jesus, whose name is above all names, would become much, much more. And it's in your name that we all said, amen. Well, Rocky Peak, this weekend, we're going to be continuing this series we've been in for the last several months or so now called Signs the Path to Life. And this has been an in-depth study in the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through one of his closest followers, one of his closest friends, a man that we now call the Apostle John. And so what John is doing is he's writing his gospel at the end of his life, and he's reflecting back on his experiences with the person of Jesus. And he's inviting us along on a journey with him. And throughout this journey, throughout his gospel, John in particular highlights seven supernatural signs in which all of his writing is meant to show who Jesus really is, why Jesus came, and what is the true path that leads to life. And so this weekend, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be continuing exactly where we left off last weekend. Last weekend, our time of teaching was led by Pastor Tim Schoen, and he began leading us in John chapter 7. If you remember the Feast of the Tabernacles, this message is very much a part two because it's continuing right where that left off. And so if for some reason you didn't catch Tim last week, or if you just need a refresher, I would love to encourage you at some point to go check that out on our YouTube channel. But last week, Tim talked about how Jesus declared his identity and people missed it. And so this weekend, we're going to continue in John chapter 7, and Jesus is going to continue to declare who he is as the Messiah. And what we're going to see is that when Jesus, in his own words, declares his identity, there's usually two reactions that take place in a person. Either a reaction of division, no, I don't believe that, or a reaction of awakening. You are who you say you are. Now, this weekend, we're going to do things a little bit different. I mentioned you're definitely going to need your Bible this weekend. We're going to cover 27 verses together. Now, it's a good thing I talk fast, isn't it? We're going to cover 27 verses. We're going to do something that I've done once or twice in the past that usually we kind of have these nice, neat little sections in which we unpack the verses and then we unpack the truth. Now, Going to do them all at the same time, Rocky Peak. So you're definitely going to want to have your Bibles on or open. Want to have that note sheet ready to go. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 7. 
open them up, turn them on to John chapter 7, and we're going to be getting started at verse 25, but we can't jump in just yet because we need to make sure that we have the right context. And Tim did a really good job of setting this up last week, but I want to go back to it that the entirety of John chapter 7 takes place at what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And for an entire chapter in one of the Gospels to take place in one event, that's a lot of real estate, meaning that John the Apostle is assuming that as readers we at least have a basic knowledge of what's going on because this setting carries a significant connection between what the Jews are celebrating and what Jesus is going to continue to declare. And so because some knowledge is expected, they're on the very front of your note sheet. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is barely scratching the surface, but I wanted to give you a little overview of the Feast of Tabernacles. So there I put that it's one of Israel's big three pilgrims feast, meaning there were, this is one of the three in which men, households were required to actually travel to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. The other two were Passover and Pentecost. So for a Jewish follower, this is the third in an epic trilogy of festivals, if you will. Now, tabernacle, if you're not familiar with that term, means a temporary shelter. And so this carried two levels of significance. One, this feast was about their practical needs and their harvest coming up in the fall. And so it carried agricultural significance. They would actually build temporary shelters to protect their crops, and they were asking for God to protect their harvest. But in big picture, it carried theological significance. And I loved how Tim put it last week. It reminded them how God lived among them when they were wandering in the desert. And if you think back to the Exodus, God didn't simply live among them, but God blessed them. God provided them. God showed an incredible level of, pace, of, of grace and patience, did he not? And so this feast was a celebration that just as God provided then, he continues to provide now. And so with that, again, being a little bit of the foundation, we're going to go ahead and we're going to jump into John chapter 7. So John chapter 7, starting at verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they, meaning the religious leaders, are trying to kill? They're trying to kill him because of blasphemy and heresy. He's claiming to be from God, to be the Messiah. Isn't this the man that they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. Would you underline that or highlight that? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. Actually, a proper reading of this is more like a question. You think you know me. You think you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. So I need you to underline or highlight that phrase because that phrase is key to the foundation of what we're talking about him. Because obviously we're putting this together, right? God sent Jesus. Jesus is saying, you don't know the one who sent me. So he is now crying out, you don't know God. And that's significant. And we're going to come back to that. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Okay, let's stop there and unpack what's going on because it got spicy. 
All right? So we need to unpack what's going on. So remember, we're continuing the passage we started in last week. Jesus declared last week that he is the Messiah using similar language. The one who sent me. My teaching comes from the one who sent me. And so this, if you remember last week, that resulted in confusion and the crowd going, this man is demon-possessed. And so they're still talking about this experience and they are confused because they can't ignore the significance of the claims Jesus is making. See, remember several weeks ago, Michael used the phrase cosmic claims. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm a religious figure. Jesus isn't just saying, I'm a good teacher or a good leader. No, this crowd knows in the midst of this religious festival, in the middle of the temple, their holiest site, this teacher is saying, I am the Messiah. And they can't ignore that. And so they're really confused because now they're wondering, well, that's blasphemy, isn't it? So why are the religious leaders letting him say this here and now? And so they're wondering, is there a conspiracy going on? Is there some type of conspiracy that the religious leaders know who he is and they're just not telling us the truth? There's some that are wondering, maybe he's saying this because he's right. And again, as they're talking among themselves, but don't we know where he's from? They mean he's from Nazareth. And that's actually a key point we're going to come to later. But as we went further, Jesus says, you don't know who sent me. Now again, I need to unpack the significance of this because we can't gloss over the weight of Jesus' words. Jesus is speaking to a religious audience much like our own today, much like what's in this room or what's watching online. This is not an audience who wonders if God exists or not. This is an audience who believes that God, the Lord God, the King, Yahweh is there. So this is an audience that has a level of knowledge when it comes to the things of God, that has a level of experience when it comes to trying to live a life that is honoring the Lord, that has a level of devotion. Again, they're at one of their three pilgrimage festivals, and here is Jesus saying, you don't know God. Can you imagine the weight of that impact? And in fact, let's make this personal. How would you respond emotionally if that was said about you? If you've been following the Lord, especially for any length of time, if you would say, no, I know Jesus, I know the things about Jesus. I'm devoted to Jesus. And if some uppity upstart teacher, which some of you have characterized me at times as, say, you don't know Jesus, how would you respond? Now we understand the weight, don't we? That doesn't feel good, does it? There's uncomfortability, there's anger, there's fear in some cases. Well, what if I don't know God? And we see as we went through that as Jesus is challenging his audience, we're seeing that they respond in two different ways. Some respond in a way that we would expect, which is believing his words. And others respond, I'm sure, in an expected way as well, with rage. They tried to seize Jesus. Think about it. What do you think they would have done had they been successful? 
They wanted to seize him with the intent of hurting him. Why would they want to do that to Jesus? Because he just challenged a deeply held belief of theirs. You don't know God. And if we know anything about the human race, if we know anything about ourselves as people, we know that when we are challenged at a deeply held belief, we don't respond well, do we? And so it raises this interesting question that when you're challenged to a deeply held belief, whatever it may be, let alone when you're challenged to your deepest held belief, how do you see Jesus? How do you respond? What are you capable of when you are deeply challenged at your core? And what we're gonna see as we continue in our passage is this deep challenge can actually lead to a response of beauty or it could lead to a response of danger. And so with that, this is actually gonna lead me to your first fill-in there on your note sheet. And your first fill-in, the first truth that we're seeing is this, that Jesus' identity causes passionate reactions. Jesus' identity Man, it causes passionate reactions. And I want to narrow the focus of this a little bit further, that we're not talking about who other people claim Jesus is. We're talking about Jesus' own claims from his own words regarding his identity. Because you see, Jesus declaring his identity is deeper than simply do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah or not. But if we are to believe Jesus' claim that he is Messiah, then that carries significant implications, doesn't it? Because if we believe that he is Messiah, then that means we believe that he is the leader and the king of our lives. If we are to say that Jesus is Messiah, that that means that our call in life is to listen and follow, is to submit and obey with what he says. And in that is the rub. There is a lot of times in my life where I find it far easier to declare, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and I find it far harder to actually obey and live that out with the words and the commands he's given me. And so as you see there in your note sheet, Jesus' own words, his own declaration of identity, usually lead to two passionate reactions. Your next villains are this, either division, in which we stand against Jesus and say, no, you're wrong, nope, not gonna do that, nope, you don't know what you're talking about, or awakening, in which his words pierce us. His words reach into the core of who we are and transform us, transform our sight, transform our vision. And the third fill-in under this point is that this reaction is, we see it externally, but that's not where it starts. This reaction begins in our hearts. The external reflex how we're responding in our heart to Jesus' own words. And I think one thing that's key about this is that again, like the Jewish audience at the time, we're not an audience necessarily that's questioning does Jesus exist or not, but what happens is that Jesus' words often will challenge Jesus' words, his identity will redefine how we understand what it means to listen and follow. And there are times, there are areas, there are situations, there are crises, there are people, there are trials, there are situations in which our heart will either respond to Jesus' leadership with division or with awakening. Now these three truths we're gonna unpack, they keep building on each other, and so this is the first one. But I'm gonna leave this here as we're gonna go ahead and keep reading in our passage. So going to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Verse 33, Jesus said, 
I am with you for only a short time and then I am going to the one who sent me. Would you underline or highlight that? I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And so let's stop right there. So the Pharisees are seeing an opportunity. They're seeing a crowd of people upset and angry. They're seeing people respond with division. And they're feeling that this could give them the public support that they've been looking for to move in and deal with this Jesus problem, so to speak. And so they send in this temple guard. Picture them as a temple police that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin had jurisdiction under and they're going to send them to officially. So the crowd that wanted to seize him, that was kind of an unofficial, a reactionary thing. Now the Pharisees are sending people to seize Jesus in an official, let's picture a warrant is out for his arrest type thing. And Jesus once again declares who he is, and he begins to point to what's going to happen after his resurrection that he will return, he will ascend to be with the Father. That's what he means by where I am going, you can't follow. And one thing that we've talked about in our time with John is that there are many times in which Jesus is teaching us something and is trying to teach us to see a much bigger picture because too often we get stuck on what's right in front of us and we keep trying to force God to make sense. And I don't know if you've experienced this or not, God doesn't always make sense. And so Jesus is talking and the crowd is confused and what are they trying to do? They're trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying. And when you try to make sense of Jesus, the best way to do that is to shrink him down is to make him manageable, that I can wrap my mind around. And so as Jesus is speaking of heaven, they're thinking quite literally of where they are on earth. See, historically at this point, many Jews had been dispersed still out throughout the Greek and the Roman Empire. And a devout Jew, if you would, a religious, a holy Jew, would not willingly leave Israel and go into the pagan lands. And so they're wondering, is that what he's talking about? Is that what he means, that he's going to go where we can't follow? Because we would never go into the pagan lands. And so again, Jesus is challenging them. He's challenging what they see. He's challenging them what they believe. He's trying to show them something bigger. But this whole path has been uncomfortable, hasn't it? And then he's really going to stick the dagger in. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. Now, I just need to stop right there. This is just something that makes me smile. John makes sure that we know Jesus was loud to make it unmistakable that everybody hears this. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Would you underline or highlight those two phrases I just read? Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. 
If you were with me a couple weeks ago in John chapter six and the feeding of the 5,000, you might remember that this was a response some of the people have. This was a prophecy coming out of the book of Deuteronomy that Moses made that one day a greater prophet than he would come to lead Israel. On hearing his word, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Would you underline or highlight that? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So let's unpack this. Let's start with Jesus' declaration that he is living water. Now, this is huge. This is absolutely huge because it is tying so many big pictures, not just of their festival, not just of what we've been in John's gospel, but it is tying together in a big way the big God story that all of scripture has been telling up to this point. And so let's go ahead and start with the ceremony, the Feast of the Tabernacles. One of the key parts of this ceremony is that most days, if I remember correctly, they would do a water ceremony in which they would gather, in which a priest would pour out water, in which they would recite and sing scriptures from the prophet Zechariah, from the prophet Isaiah. They would recite and sing psalms that all celebrated how God provides water how God makes us a well-watered soul, how God would bring water out of a land that was parched and a land that was dry. And so the image behind that water ceremony was the image that the Bible teaches us that water represents life. Our world is designed to reflect that, is it not? Water is life. Water represents the life that God gives. And so the reason why water was such a key symbol in this festival was yes, they were asking for God to provide water for their harvest, but more than that, they were remembering how God provided water for the Israelites when they were dying of thirst in the desert. And in remembering that, they would celebrate that as God did, he will do once again that he will provide water for a desperate and thirsty people. And so Jesus, in the middle of the temple, in the end of this festival, on the greatest day, as John put it, is declaring that the hope that we celebrate in this festival, as well as the hope that we celebrate in our scriptures, is now found in him. He is the living water. And I like looking at it this way. If you've ever been a fan of a long-running television show, like one of those shows like Lost or 24 that goes on for like eight or nine seasons, halfway through, there is always one key episode that you call the payoff, isn't it? It's not the end of the story in completion, but it is a key episode in which it grabs storylines, story beats, threads, characters from all the years before, and it finally puts it all together to show you how it ties to get all together in one neat package. This passage is doing that for us not just for John's gospel, for all of scripture that has come before it. But again, if we look specifically at John's gospel, John opened in chapter one by saying, in Jesus there is life. In John chapter four, as Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, if you remember, he says that the water I give, you will never go thirsty again. 
In John chapter six, when Jesus fed the 5,000, again, he is the bread, he is this provision. He gives us what we need to survive as well as what we need to thrive. And now this big payoff is not only is this Jesus, but we see that he has a much bigger plan, that this water he's talking about is really God's Holy Spirit. See, after the fact, John adds this editorial comment that at the time they didn't know because the spirit hadn't come yet. But after Jesus rose again, after Jesus ascended to be with the Father, that's what glorification means. He gave us his spirit so that no longer were we separated from God, but because of the work, the act, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, we are now the temple. The spirit lives in you. The spirit lives in me. That is the water that will sustain us. I love his image. It's not a cup. It's not a sip. It is rivers. God has come to overwhelm you with life, with true life. And how do we respond? By arguing. They began arguing, wait, wait, no, 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 no. This doesn't make sense. Because the Bible says that God would be born in Bethlehem. And we know this man. We know where he's from. This man is from Nazareth. This man is from Galilee. And we've touched on this in the series. There's a lot of prejudice for people that came from Galilee. He's disqualified. So who does he think he is? And again, they're thinking of Micah chapter five. But what is the showing? That so often we think we know Jesus. And it's what we think we know that causes us to completely miss out on the truth. Let me ask you something. How much effort do you think it would have taken to clear this up? How much effort do you think it would have taken to go, hey, where were you born? Now the truth is that's kind of a trick question because the answer is a lot because it has nothing to do with where Jesus was born or not, but it has everything to do with their paradigm. You can't be the Messiah, because if you are the Messiah, then that has to change everything about me. That has to change how I understand God. That has to change how I understand what it means to listen and follow. That will change this paradigm. I've held on so tightly, so devoutly for so long, for some of them, their entire lives. This isn't an issue of birthplace anymore. This is an issue of paradigms. No, 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 no. This is too big of a change. And that actually on your note sheet leads me to the second truth is that Jesus challenges what we believe. Jesus challenges what we believe, specifically about him. How we understand who he is, what it means to follow after him, and the life we're supposed to reflect as Christ followers. See, I've shared this once before, but I think he, it's put really clearly in Matthew chapter five at the beginning of the, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous teaching Jesus ever gave. He often uses these dual phrases of, you've heard it said, now I say unto you. In other words, you believed it this way, now I, Jesus, am saying to you. Now let's think back to that earlier statement we wrestled with. Jesus saying, you don't 
know God. He's not doing it to leave us in a place of shame. He's doing it to acknowledge truth because he wants to come into our lives. He wants to remove that knowledge. He wants to remove those lies we've believed and he wants to rattle our cage, not for the sake of rattling our cage because he enjoys it, but he wants to rattle our cage so that we, as his precious creation that he came and died for, that we would experience a bigger story. That we would experience life and the life that he gives. And so it can be very easy and tempting, and I know this far too well, to hear Jesus go, you don't know God, and to weaponize that and to point out to other people. And to say, you're right, they don't know God. You're right, they definitely don't go know God. They are standing against you, they are standing against your word, and you know what, you're probably right. But first, we need to aim that question at our own hearts. We need to say, it's not a matter of do we believe as a whole that Jesus is Messiah, but is there an area in my life, is there an emotion, is there a relationship, is there a substance, is there a hurt, a pain, is there a desire, a hope, a dream, a habit? Is there an area in my life in which my heart is responding to the Messiah's leadership with division rather than awakening? Let me illustrate what I mean by this. Man, these last 15 months have been pretty angry, haven't they? on various levels. And I wish I could say that I've been exempt from that, but I've not been. I've spent a lot of time over these last 15 months angry for numerous reasons, in numerous ways. And yet throughout these last 15 months, the Lord has kept bringing James 1.19 to me. James, as Tim talked about last week, being the half-brother of Jesus, writes, everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and what's the part we don't like? Slow to become angry. And I wanna be honest with you, Rocky Peak, the Lord hasn't been bringing this up to my life in a nice, gentle, kind way. He's been bringing this up in my life like a spiritual two-by-four upside my head. And there's a part of me that has wanted to go, well, you gotta, you gotta work with me here, God. It's been because of these last 15 months. It's been because of everything that's happened. And God's like, really? And what he's been doing through that scripture is showing me, no, that's an excuse, Dre. You were far angrier than you needed to be long before the pandemic. Long before any type of unrest. Long before any type of division or argument or loss of friends. He began to take my eyes off of these national and cultural issues. And he began to show me, you are angry when it comes to your family, when it comes to your friends, when it comes to not getting your way. You are angry when it comes to me and my leadership in your life. And like anybody who's trying to save themselves before a righteous judge, I began to justify myself. I begin to say, no, no, you don't understand. God, I've been angry, yes, but for the right reasons. I'm standing up for the right things. That has to count for something, right? And Jesus is like, yes, there are times in which you're angry for the right things, in which you're angry for the right reasons, but that doesn't mean you get to ignore my leadership. And he took me back to that verse. This doesn't say you don't get to be angry. It just says you need to do it a certain way because that's what I command and that's what reflects me. And ultimately, he's asked me this question through this verse, Dre, am I the Messiah in your life? Do you believe that? 
And again, there's many times my answer has been, yeah, but, but Jesus, this way makes sense. Jesus, this way feels natural. Jesus, this is what everyone else is doing. Am I the Messiah? Yeah. Then let me wake you up to something bigger. You know, several years ago, Michael introduced this language into our church of filters in which we put a lens on how we see Jesus, often unintentionally, but what happens is that it distorts how we see Jesus. And when our image of Jesus is distorted, then how we understand obedience becomes distorted as well. Often these filters end up shrinking Jesus down to a Messiah that resembles me or you, a Messiah that makes sense. And why does Jesus then so vehemently challenge what we believe about him? Again, not because he revels or enjoys this, but because he wants you, he wants me to experience a greater vision, to experience a greater life, to experience rivers of living water. And hear me, Rocky Peak, I will be the first to admit, man, it hurts when he does that, doesn't it? And it might be a journey and a process of wrestling and fighting, especially if you're convinced you're right. If you look there in your note sheet, if you remember from John chapter 6, as Michael put it, Jesus taught a thinning the herd message. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And many walked out. And when we're honest about when God challenges us, a verse like this becomes so much more relatable, doesn't it? But remember that Jesus is challenging you to awaken you. Jesus is challenging you to awaken you to a greater truth, a greater life, a greater experience, rivers of living water. I like how N.T. Wright puts it. Jesus told stories whose many dimensions cracked open the worldview of his hearers and forced them to come to terms with God's reality. Let's stop right there. I like that. Forced them to come to terms with God's reality, a bigger reality, a more epic reality. Breaking into their midst, doing what they had always longed for, but doing it in ways that were so startling as to be hardly recognizable. And so let's continue in verse 45. Finally, the temple guards, it feels like we've been through a lot, hasn't it? Remember them? Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring them in? Verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guard said. Would you underline or highlight that? No one ever spoke the way this man does. Verse 47, the response of the Pharisees, you mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted, have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. And so their response is a personal and vindictive attack. You don't know God but they're the wrong people to use that phrase. Who do you think you are? Oh, you're just a common person. What do you know? And they're showing a common temptation that when Jesus challenges what we believe, we face this temptation to shrink the circle of who gets it and who doesn't. And in that temptation, what the danger is that often when we shrink the circle, we leave Jesus himself out. Verse 50, Nicodemus. Remember the TV show analogy? So look who's making a cameo. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, John chapter three, and who was one of their own number asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? 
They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And so remember I asked, what are you capable of when you're challenged at the deepest levels? Well, Nicodemus is showing the beauty of what we're capable of, while these other Pharisees are showing the danger. See, Nicodemus, this has not been easy for him either. He went to go see Jesus in John chapter 3 under the cover of night. He doesn't know what to think either. This is shaking his paradigm. This is challenging him deeply. This has got to be really difficult with everything that he believed and thought he knew up to this point. And yet here he is publicly, not necessarily as a believer, but as a voice of reason. He's not necessarily disagreeing with the other Pharisees. He's just saying, saying, hey, this is a big deal. You have a right to be angry with what he's saying. What does God's word tell us about how we're supposed to do this? And the response instead is another personal and vindictive attack. You are an idiot. That is essentially what they're saying. Are you from Galilee too? Which is showing their prejudice for that entire region. Remember earlier they said, who has deceived you? If you knew the Bible, then you would know that a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. Which is a little confusing because Jonah came from the region of Galilee. We don't know if they mean the prophet or if they're speaking a but either way their challenge to the reasonable voice is check your bible but what is nicodemus responding to he's responding to jesus's challenge and he's modeling the beauty of us that yeah this can hurt and yeah this can be painful But if you remember, the second truth was that Jesus challenges what we believe in the third fill and the final one is the continuation of that statement to lead us to experience living water. To lead us to experience living water. God's vision for you is that you would be alive to the full. In John chapter 10, Jesus is going to say that I have come to give you life and life to the full. That is what it means to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, that we are not only making an intellectual statement, but we are making an emotional, a spiritual, and one with our actions, that he is Messiah, and I will listen and follow to his leadership, not because I'm forced to, not because I'm afraid of hell, but because that is the path to life and rivers of flowing water. That is the Holy Spirit that he's come to give us. But if you want to be overwhelmed by the water that Jesus brings, you need to let him shatter the dam that's holding it back in your life. Then you will experience truly his spirit. I like how it's put there in your note sheet. Jesus insists that he alone can provide the real drink, the satisfying spirit, What the Old Testament texts were really anticipating was the gift of the Holy Spirit. Water sometimes served as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. So again, as we leave this passage, as we look at these three truths, Jesus is awakening us through his identity to a more epic vision, to deeper life, to be overwhelmed by his water than you or I could have ever possibly imagined. And so as we leave this there in your note sheet, I just want to invite you to reflect on one final question, and that's this. What is Jesus awakening in you? What is Jesus awakening in you? You know, my wife is my hero, and I often learn from her. And recently, something that the Lord's been teaching her is this beautiful idea of invitation. 
that when we face challenge or hard teachings or trials or tests from the Lord, what is Jesus inviting us into? And so if Jesus is challenging how you see him, how you obey him, really the question is, what is he inviting you to do? He's inviting you to experience living water, to experience life, to experience who he really is, to experience his leadership in all areas, even the ones we've held back for whatever reason. And so I wanna invite you to do something with me. See, these messages on the weekend aren't meant to end here. What Michael, what Tim, what I do in these settings are meant to be a catalyst for you to continue a conversation and a dialogue one-on-one with our King Jesus. And so to answer this question, what is Jesus awakening in you? I want to invite you to ask him. I want to invite you sometime in the next 24 hours, would you carve out 15 to 20 minutes? Would you sit and read this passage that we just covered, all 27 verses, unrushed, slowly looking at it or listening to it if you prefer? And would you ask that question, what are you awakening in me, Jesus? Being one-on-one with him, with his word, with his leadership, man, that is the path to life. Amen? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are waking us up. Your word, your teaching, your spirit, your will. Jesus, I'll be the first to confess that there are times in which I want to respond with division because I don't understand you sometimes. I don't understand the why, I don't understand the when, I don't understand the pain, I don't understand the tears, I don't understand the conflict or the chaos. But Jesus, as you declare yourself as living water, it reminds me that you see something that I don't and never will, that you're bigger than I could ever wrap my mind around that you don't tell me it needs to make sense, but you give me your spirit inside of me to remind me, to exhort me, trust me. And that Jesus, when I fall asleep in certain areas, it's your spirit that beautifully wakes me up. And so we pray as a church, as the church of Rocky Peak, as the church of Jesus, here in our part of Southern California, Jesus, we ask you to wake us up We ask you to wake us up to your identity, to wake us up to your hope, to your power, to your beauty, to your forgiveness, to your grace, to your resurrection, to your presence. Wake our hearts up. Jesus, as we are being challenged, as you are rattling our cages, remind us that it's not because you take some fiendish glee in seeing a struggle, but you are inviting us to be part of a bigger story, your story. And we thank you for that beauty, and we commit in the good and the bad and the easy and the hard to respond to your leadership with obedience. And it is in your name, King Jesus, that we all said, amen.